right. Good morning, Midland Reformed Church. We decided to try to move a little bit closer to you, and uh, this is starting to feel a little bit cozier. So uh, uh, I can see faces and not just masks now, right? So it's good to see you and uh, welcome you today to this time of worship uh, here in the the sanctuary, the sanctuary uh, of God's gathered people where his spirit is present. And today, um, I want to uh, look with you at a text that is different from the one printed uh, in the uh, the app or on your uh, outline. Uh, just two very simple uh, verses uh, from John's Gospel. And uh, sometimes you hear me stand here and say something to you like, you know, I think I've never preached on this topic before. I've never turned to this text before. Or this is the very first time I've ever considered uh, this particular uh, teaching. Uh, and this time, though, uh, I think this text may be uh, the one text that I've spent more time thinking about and preaching about than any other text. And so um, um, I'm drawn to return to it. And uh, this is, this is what we, we read. And uh, I want to begin as John chapter 13, beginning at verse 31. And as soon as Judas left the room, and you know why Judas left the room, right? This is the upper room, the Last Supper, and uh, Judas' betrayal uh, has just been uh, revealed. Judas left the room, and Jesus said, uh, The time has come for me, the Son of Man, to enter into my glory. And God will receive glory because of all of the things that will happen to me. And God will bring me into my glory very soon. Dear children, how brief are these moments before I must go away and leave you. Then, though you search for me, you cannot come to me. Just as I told the Jewish leaders, so now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. We'll ask God to bless this reading, his holy and inspired word. Amen. So this morning uh, we want to look at the topic of love. And uh, my hunch is that we all come sort of preloaded with lots of ideas about what love is. Some of us this morning are saying, I mean, really, what's love got to do with it? And others are convinced today that all you need is love. So at the end of the day, the world is watching. And our hope is that you don't give love a bad name. Okay, Mike, your 80s are showing. Be careful. Um, So there's a famous story in our house uh, that comes from Benjamin's uh, childhood, back when he was in grade school. Uh, He was sitting in his classroom, and uh, it was a particularly rambunctious day. All of the kids were agitated and loud and chaotic, and uh, the teacher stood in front of the room, and at one point, in just total and sheer frustration, she shouted out, Stop! And then in the stunned silence of the classroom, Benjamin's little voice could be heard, In the name of love. Right? So 
we all we all come right and then of course the moment is lost everybody you know bursts out in, in laughter and uh, um, the day goes on so we all have a different understanding of what love is lots of ways to think about love uh, in the movie Moulin Rouge Ewan McGregor's character is named Christian and Christian finds himself at the infamous Moulin Rouge which is a nightclub charitably described uh, and this is a place that promises to be a place of intrigue and excitement and fascination but in reality far from delivering on your hopes and dreams it is a place of brokenness and despair and cynicism it's a place where relationships and love itself has just simply become a commodity something to be bought and sold and marketed love has been cheapened to nothing but sex and it's in this broken world of the Moulin Rouge that Christian comes and Christian's job in this place is to sing a love song and even though when he sings his love song he sounds naive and it sounds as if he's simply out of touch he sings his love song at the top of his lungs and with intensity and passion and conviction and he sings it until some new hope is reborn and others can join in as well Moulin Rouge is a parable to modern pilgrims progress Christian your job your calling your purpose in life is to sing a love song your calling is to sing a love song right smack dab in the middle of a world that is hard and cynical and desperate and you keep singing that love song even when you look silly and sentimental and naive you keep singing your love song until hope is reborn and life comes again where now there is only death it's fascinating to me that Jesus gives this command to his disciples love one another at the Last Supper he gives this command just after Judas betrayal is revealed and he gives this command just before the other disciples will abandon him and in fact deny that they even know him he gives this command just before the crowds shout to crucify him so how many of us feel like singing a love song when we're in the midst of being rejected or humiliated or wronged how many of us uh, feel like singing a love song to the ones who are humiliating us or rejecting us or wronging us how many of us find ourselves singing love songs when somebody betrays us or accuses us of something that we didn't do? The truth is, in those moments, we are, I am, more likely to sing war songs. I want to sing songs about defending myself or about getting even or about justifying myself. And yet Jesus comes and he says, that isn't the way that people will know that you belong to me. The way that people will know that you are mine, the mark of discipleship, he says, is the way that you love one another. The 
authentic, authentication of your participation in Jesus' family, your identity as a disciple, has to do with how well you love one another. And the reality is, if we look in the mirror of feedback and reflections, uh, the church hasn't done a great job at doing that. In one fascinating little book called The Great Evangelical Recession, six factors that will crash the American church and how to prepare. So it's a really optimistic, cheerful thing, right? If you want to look at something that will just lift your spirit. One of the six factors that this study identifies is that the church today is increasingly divided. The church is divided politically, divided theologically. It's divided over how to do church, what it even means to be church. Divided over views of what scripture is and how to use the Bible. Divided over issues. And now we're divided over things like race and how do we talk about justice. We're divided over COVID and how to respond or not respond. We're rapidly losing our authority as a church to speak to our culture because increasingly we sound and look just like our culture. We demand our rights, our wants, our needs. We defend our positions more than we listen to the other side, much less love them. And a watching world has noticed a watching world has noticed, at least the ones who are willing to talk about it and respond to polls, look at us and they don't see a community devoted to loving one another, to demonstrating our mutual belonging to Jesus. No wonder, in the words of another influential book, they love Jesus but hate the church. But we not only fail to sing love songs to one another who all live under the banner of Christ, but we don't sing our love songs to this watching world either. We don't sing our songs to a world that desperately longs to hear about love. In all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we find this great commandment. And along with the Great Commission, the Great Commandment gives us our marching orders for what it means to be the church. Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? What is the most important thing that we can be about? What is at the center of what we do and what we believe and what we want? And Jesus says, loving God, and secondly, the most important thing that you can do is to love your neighbor. And predictably, somebody says, okay, but there has to be a catch. What are the limits of that? Who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love exactly? And you know the famous story Jesus uses to respond. It's a surprising answer for his listeners. And it's a challenging answer for us. Jesus tells the story of a man who goes on a long road trip and he gets mugged and left for dead. And then Jesus puts a twist in his story. Because it isn't the, the people of the victim's own tribe or congregation. It's not his inner circle that come to his aid. It's an outsider. It's an other. 
It's a reject. That's the neighbor. Who is the outsider that you today can't currently imagine loving or loving you? Who is it in your life that you cannot imagine loving? When you see that person, then you feel the thrust of Jesus' command. Who are the outsiders that all too often hear us sing songs of exclusion and judgment and fear and anger? Uh, we, we sing our songs uh, with a hermeneutic of suspicion. A hermeneutic of suspicion where we uh, identify somebody with whom we might have some differences. And then we move into a stance of parsing everything that is said, looking and examining for some hidden agenda, assuming the worst motives, being defensive and trying to protect self. It's hard for us to sing a song of love from a culture of suspicion. So Jesus shows us that while it is hard, it is our calling. And right in the middle of the most excruciating hours of his life, he sings a love song. He sings a love song to his disciples. He washes their feet. He sings a love song to his neighbors. And yes, even to his enemies. It's not enough, though, just to sing the love song instead of some other song. Jesus says you also need to sing your love song on pitch. You can't be flat or sharp. Jesus says... Uh, when he's commanding his disciples to love, that they're supposed to love in a very particular way, in a very specific manner. He says, you're to love as I have loved you. That's the modifier. There's the pitch. That's the note that we need to match. That's the key that we'll be singing in. Singing in tune with Jesus about love is challenging because we have so many different ways that we think about love. Different ways that we decide what love is or isn't. I've been paying attention uh, in the last little while to how people use the word love, either in person or on social media, books. We love the weather, just love the weather. We love music or musician or a group. I love that new song. I love that groove. We love a car. We love some food, some delicious barbecue. We love chocolate. We love our spouse. We love a child. We love a book. And on and on and on. We love so many things. And this word covers so many different situations. So the question is, in uh, even if I can't identify my neighbor, even if I do recognize an enemy, what, in what sense do I have to love that person? How do I love my spouse? Do I love my spouse the way that I love a chocolate brownie? Or a snowy mountain? When Jesus says, as I have loved you, he isn't thinking about love as affection or enjoyment. Right? He, he isn't thinking about... Uh, 
Uh, love the things that make you feel good and that lift you up. When Jesus says love your neighbor, he isn't thinking about a desire for intimacy or about romantic feelings. A lot of the sour notes that we hit when we try to sing our love song come down to the mistake of confusing love for a mere emotion rather than a decision or a posture or a behavior or an attitude, a commitment to act for the other even when it's costly for me. That may ultimately produce emotions, but it doesn't begin there. And so Jesus' love isn't something that you simply fall into or fall out of. That's emotional love, or, or better, emotional attachment. Emotional attachment means that I engage a relationship with a person because I enjoy the positive way that that person makes me feel. I enjoy the positive feelings that I have around that individual. And so over time, I come to rely on that person to help me manage the inner world of my feelings. I rely on that person to help me calm down or to make me happy or to make me feel content or satisfied or safe. And so in a in a peculiar way that my love actually becomes needy and dependent. Emotional detachment, desire for intimacy, expressions of human sexuality, enjoying good feelings, butterflies in your tummy on your first day, all of those things are very human and very good gifts from God in their right place, but on their own they are not love. We'll take a program break brought to you by MidMichigan Health. On their own, they are not love, at least not the love that Jesus is commanding. And to confuse them with love, as I have loved you, says Jesus, will pull you off key. And it will make love possible only when you can work up the emotions that you expect to go with it. Love as I have loved you, says Jesus. Church, that's discipleship. If your knowledges, your knowledge, and your theology, and your practice don't produce that result, it's for nothing. It's a clanging gong. How do you love when you get no love in return? How do you love without feeling used or taken advantage of or without using others? How do you love when you have your own problems, mountains of them? I'll say three things about that. First of all, keep your eyes on Jesus. As I have loved you, Jesus is a model. Jesus is the paradigm. Jesus is the program. Jesus is the target that you're shooting for. Notice how Jesus does his relationships. Notice how Jesus has compassion. Notice how Jesus listens and how he responds and how he sacrifices. Jesus is a model for your love. But more than that, not only keep your eyes on Jesus, keep your heart close to Jesus. Listen to what Jesus is saying to you. Hear the Spirit speaking to you through the words of Scripture. Allow your assumptions and your understanding and your limitations to be challenged and provoked. 
your imagination about what is possible with love to be inflamed. Confess to Jesus those places where your heart is dislocated from his own and turn around in repentance. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your heart close to Jesus. And finally, drink deeply from Jesus' grace. Jesus says, love as I have loved you. He doesn't just say, love as I have loved others. And you can observe how I've loved so many people around you, and I'll try to do that too. Jesus says, love as I have loved you. Drink deeply of that grace. Know that Jesus loves you. Jesus is committed to you. Jesus is given his life for you. He cherishes you. He heals you. There is nothing that you can do to have less of Jesus' love, and there's nothing that you can do to have more of it. Jesus' love for you is lavish and abundant. You see, when you drink deeply of that grace, when you know Jesus' love for you, You have nothing left to prove. There is nothing left to seek that you need. There's no more emptiness to be made whole. And when that is true, when you have drunk deeply of that grace, therefore you are set free to sing. Christian, sing your love song. Amen. Would you pray with me, please? Jesus, thank you for loving us. Or some of us uh, don't know what to do with that. Some of us uh, take that for granted. Some of us believe that that love is uh, uh, conditional on us being good. Or we receive that love because we have been good that we've done the right things and lived a good life, and so of course you love us. And, and some of us can't imagine that your love is for us. So Lord, just strip away everything that stands between your love and our spirit. And allow us to drink deeply from that fountain of grace. And as we're filled and saturated by your love for us, help us to uh, in some way, in some, uh, in, in some beginning and in, in faltering and tentative way, begin to be that presence of love in the world around us. Help us to love enemies that we can't currently imagine loving. Help us to have compassion on neighbors that we don't know. And help us to care for one another. Not only in spite of differences, but because of them. Let's regain a powerful identity in this world. As people who are different, people who are known by their love.